If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. she was a woman first and a queen second. That was Linda Porter on the events that led to the eventual downfall of Mary, Queen of Scots. You couldn't go into a pub, hotel, swimming pool. You just didn't know when you were going to be told not to, but your white friend can come in. And that was Paul Stevenson, who campaigned to overturn a colour bar on Bristol's buses. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. And you can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And as you may well know, we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. The downfall of Mary Queen of Scots, which culminated in her eventual execution in 1587, has long been viewed as the result of an ill-advised love affair. But was this actually the case? BBC History Magazine's Features Editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to historian Linda Porter to find out if the Scottish Queen was really brought down by forces beyond her control, and if she could have done anything to save herself from the executioner's block. So, Linda, Mary, Queen of Scots, was sent to France at the age of five to prepare for her marriage to the Dauphin Francis, who was heir to the French throne. Do you think she ever thought that she would actually one day return to Scotland? I think it's fairly hard to know what a five-year-old might have might have thought at the time. Um, it is the place that she had grown up and spent her early childhood. I would suspect that at that stage, in so far as she gave any thought to her long-term future, and it's worth pointing out that the marriage to um, the Dauphin Francois was an aspiration of her mother rather than anything that was already settled in treaty or anything like that. I, I suspect that she hoped to return sometime as queen of both Scotland and France, but that she anticipated in so far as she had a grasp of what was really going on, that she would spend the rest of her life in France. What sort of upbringing would she have had at the French court? Uh, She was brought up with the daughters of um, Henry II, Henri II, and his wife, Catherine de' Medici, uh, and also partly educated alongside Francis, who, who was to be her husband. They ch- shared tutors for languages and philosophy and a, and a number of other things. Uh, so, she was always treated um, like a, a like a queen, but probably more like a queen in waiting for France rather than a, a French, uh, rather than a Scottish queen. Her country was viewed as, as being um, interesting but barbaric, and she was something of a, a, um, 
a curiosity, I suppose, in that respect. She, funnily enough, although her mother Mary of Guise was French, she doesn't appear to have spoken any French worth mentioning before she went to France, but she picked it up very quickly. Uh, she was a very outgoing, um, ebullient child who, who obviously got on well with other people. And you have to remember, she was used to being treated as a queen, even as a five-year-old. So she would have had expectations of how people should behave towards her. Uh, and all in all, she had a, a fairly happy childhood, I, I think. She was much um, petted by um, her, her future father-in-law, Henry II, was very fond of her. He called her the most perfect child he had ever seen. Uh, and um, uh, Catherine de' Medici seems to have taught her needlework and, and more feminine things of that sort, and also to have developed in Mary a lifelong interest in eating al fresco. It was in France that she first learned to enjoy picnics, and they were something that, that Catherine de' Medici liked. But uh, I mean, she was uh, educated and, and lived largely at Saint Germain, the palace outside Paris where the royal children grew up. Partly also in the Louvre, they, they did move around, as all royalty did at that time, between palaces. And it was a very privileged upbringing, but she soon was parted from her Scottish entourage. Her four attendants, who were also called Marys, you know, the, the famous four Marys, were sent off to be educated elsewhere. Um, her lady governess, um, uh, Lady Janet Stewart, who'd come over from, Fran uh, from Scotland to France with her, was an illegitimate daughter of Mary's grandfather, James IV, and uh, had some of her father's own predilections for sex, I'm afraid, because she managed to get herself pregnant by Henry II, which didn't go down very well either with Catherine de' Medici or with the king's official maître son titre, Diane de Poitiers, and she was sent home in disgrace, having fathered a son. Uh, so Mary was long largely under the sort of control and education of French people. After a while, she was appointed when Janet Stewart was sent back to Scotland, a, a very strict French lady that she didn't like at all. And I think she learnt early also that courts may be places of great privilege with lots of riches and wonderful food and art and entertainment, but they're also places with a lot of spies and people you can't trust. Uh, and her own household was from time to time riven with, you know, internal disputes and, and unpleasantness of the sort that characterised quite a lot of uh, royal households in the, that time. But all in all, it was a, a, a very pleasant and happy upbringing with a, a good standard education for a Renaissance woman. And Francis died quite young, didn't he? He did. He died at the age of uh, 16. Uh, he, he seems to have had a, what we'd call mastoiditis nowadays, a, a bad ear infection and abscess, which um, turned septic and burst. And uh, he might have been saved um, if they drained it. But the doctor was a Protestant and he was afraid that if he got it wrong, he would be blamed and probably executed. So he did nothing for the poor young man who died in agony with his mother and grieving young wife at his bedside. Um, so Mary returned to Scotland in 1561 after Francis died. Um, but how did, how did her subjects feel about her return? Mary came back to a country that didn't know her, to a people that didn't know her, but to a quite sizable existing family of half-siblings because her father had had 
nine known illegitimate children, all by different wives. And his children were well treated and well educated. Uh, and um, Mary formed quite close relationships with some of them, though she, she had known a couple of them uh, when she went to France, though it's possible that she didn't know of her, their existence until that time. But no, I, I would say that Mary was an unknown quantity when she got back to Scotland to her people, to the Scottish political establishment and to herself, probably as Queen of Scots as well. And at the time Elizabeth I was on the throne, it's her, her cousin. Um, yeah. What did Mary's return to Scotland um how did, how did Elizabeth react to that? Did it cause any concern in England at all? It did cause concern, but then Mary had caused concern in France. Uh, and in fact, there was probably more concern while she was Queen of France, married to Francis, and they courted the English coat of arms with their own. And, and Henry II had undoubtedly intended before his death to pursue Mary's claim to the English throne. Um, it was his avowed intention and he said he would do it to get, you know, to, to join all of the British Isles to France. So in some respects, having Mary in Scotland makes her somewhat closer and easier to keep an eye on and immediately diminishes the French threat. Uh, however, I mean, most of Elizabeth's advisers, particularly William Cecil, who became Lord Burley, always viewed Mary as the greatest threat to the stability of England's throne. And indeed, he spent most of his lifetime trying to uh, ensure that um, she would be contained and, and then, of course, removed. Mm. And, and why do you think Mary decided to, to marry again? She, she married her, her cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. And what was the, what was the resulting impact of that union? I think she decided to marry again because that was what queens did. You have to remember that um, Elizabeth was quite unique in that respect. And Mary felt, as it turned out wrongly, that she would be stronger if she had an heir, particularly a male heir. She thought this would enhance her position. In the end, it provided a handy alternative for her enemies. But she couldn't have known that, of course, at the time that she she had had pursued possible marriages with various people. Uh, Elizabeth, of course, um, had the idea, which has always seemed hard for historians to swallow, because it's very hard to know whether she was genuine about this or not. Uh, eventually, as you know, she offered the Earl of Leicester. In fact, she made Robert Dudley Earl of Leicester in order to make him a suitable consort for Mary, Queen of Scots. And she, uh, whether this is was a genuine offer or not, I don't know. I mean, Mary, to be frank, was insulted by it, as, as she had ever right, every right to be. And the, the least enthusiastic person about it of all was the Earl of Leicester. <laughs> <laughs> and Lord Darnley, um, from your feature you've written, he, he doesn't sound like a very nice man. He was, he was a silly little boy, mm. a silly, pretty boy. Um, and perhaps history has been harsh to him. Uh, he... He really was a young man who was thrust into the most appallingly difficult situation um, from the wrong kind of background with no, no chance whatsoever of finding his way through it. He was 19 years old. Um, he was very good looking. He had been uh, very tall. Um, he is the long lad that both Elizabeth and Mary referred to. Um, he had been um, well educated and spent some time in France um, where amongst other 
other courtly attributes, he seems to have caught syphilis, uh, though Mary, I think, would not have married him had that been widely known at the time because it would have jeopardized her health and the possible health of any children that they had. Uh, he was the darling boy of his two parents, the enormously ambitious Earl and Countess of Lennox. Um, Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox, was uh, a daughter of, of Margaret Tudor by her second husband, the Earl of Angus. Mary seems to have married Darnley not so much for his dancing ability and his good looks. Um, she had seen through this, we now believe, fairly early to, to the spoilt, immature brat that he actually was. But he provided an extremely attractive dynastic possibility. You know, between the two of them, um, their claims to the English throne were greatly enhanced. And why Elizabeth let Lord Darnley go north to join his father in 1565, no one has ever really understood. It seems to have been on behalf of herself and her council, the most disastrous miscalculation. If there was something terribly clever going on at the back of their minds, it's not immediately apparent what it was. And certainly they appeared to be appalled when they realised um, that she was going to marry Darnley, which she did at the end of July 1565. Darnley himself seems to be very, have been very threatened by her, um, her Italian secretary and friend David Riccio. Um, he actually had him murdered. Well, he thought he was. It wasn't really Darnley who had him murdered. Right. It was the Schnobles. Um, Darnley soon found that although he had the title of King of Scots, it didn't actually mean anything. What he wanted was what is called the crown matrimonial. In other words, to reign equally with his wife. But because he was a man, he would have automatically taken precedence. Well, Mary soon realised that he wasn't remotely fitted for such a role, at least not for the foreseeable future. And it wasn't one she was willing to give up to him. Um, and Elizabeth wouldn't recognise him as King of Scots because of his claim to the English throne. So he soon found himself as a sort of, um, how shall I put it? A spare it? part. A spare part <laughs> that could produce an heir. Mm. You know, he was daddy fodder, as it were, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and he, he was very self-important, very vain. Um, he disliked having virtually nothing to do. Mary didn't spend enough time with him because she was a very conscientious queen who was always attending to council meetings in the business of government. Um, he seems to have felt neglected, overlooked. He took to drink, um, which he did very freely. Um, his health worsened. And in the spring of 1556, well, the late winter, early spring of 1566, various of Mary's disgruntled nobles, and by that time there were a good many, including her own half-brother, who had objected to the Darnley marriage because he saw his own power going out of the window with the arrival of another, you know, of a, of a king consort, as it were, um, were afraid that uh, they had rebelled against the queen. Uh, and they were afraid that um, when the new parliament met in March 1566, their lands were going to be forfeited. And in fact, Mary did intend to do this. And what they wanted was to frighten the life out of her, possibly literally. That, that I think, was not an option that would necessarily have displeased them, but also to have a scapegoat. And that scapegoat was David Riccio, who, who was a self-important little Italian who'd 
come over as a singer. He had a fine bass voice to join. Mary was like her parents and, and also like the Tudors, um, very keen on music and, and a competent enough music, musician herself. And she uh, had wanted a bass to join a quartet. Um, at about the same time, she rowed with her existing French secretary and got rid of him. Uh, we call um, Riccio Italian because of his name. But actually, he was from Savoy, um, which wasn't, you know, part, it's now geographically, of course, part of Italy. But at the time, it was an independent duchy and closer to France. Uh, and he was, he was a Savoyard. Um, and... It, because of that, of course, he spoke good French. And Mary appointed him as her French secretary. She, as her marriage to Darnley deteriorated, which she began to do, incidentally, within certainly the first few months of their marriage, um, she relied on him and on her some of her half-siblings for, for sort of social support. And, and she was perhaps unwise to ignore um, what people were saying about her relationship with Riccio. But uh, um, Darnley believed it because he wanted to believe it and because he was manipulated by the Earl of Morton um, and various other men far cleverer and more schooled in the vagaries of Scottish politics, which were difficult for anyone to follow at the time um, than he was. Uh, and they um, formed a bond with him, um, which had a sort of legal and moral force that he would actually be involved in the removal of Davy, senior Davy as he was known, um, which was to be a permanent removal. Um, and, and that is how Riccio came to be murdered. But he was murdered as a scapegoat to frighten Mary into abandoning the parliament, which would have greatly disadvantaged some of her leading noblemen. And, and Darnley himself was assassinated only a year later. He um, was. Um, he had um, greatly upset the Earl of Morton and his other cronies in the murder of, of Riccio by um, essentially double-crossing them. Um, Mary managed to... Uh, she, Mary was a clever operator. I mean, most people think of her as this daft woman who looks a bit like a young v Vanessa Redgrave in films made years ago, you know, some sloppy romantic type who was pushed from pillar to post. But Mary was quite a shrewd political operator. She got Darnley away from those who had... He imprisoned her in, in Holyrood for a day or two. She got him away. They fled to Dunbar, which is a mighty fortress further down the coast. And there she pointed out to him that these people were not his friends, actually, and that he'd be far better off staying with her. But um, this double cross on Darnley's part was something that Morton and others never forgot or forgave. You know, the blood feud was strong in Scotland at the time. And Darnley had effectively signed his own death warrant. And how did she react to her husband's death? She appears to have reacted with utter amazement. Uh, she was suffering from depression beforehand. She had been very ill in the autumn of the previous year. She, she survived giving birth to the future James VI and I quite well in the summer of 1566, but then she fell ill while visiting the borders in what is often viewed as a romantic tryst with the Earl of Bothwell, but was nothing of the sort. She realised she was in a marriage that she must get out of. She wasn't sure about divorce because it might illegitimise her son and heir. Um, 
she didn't really know what to do. Her nobles advised her that, that um, she must be rid of Darnley. And he himself wanted to go abroad. He wanted to go to France. Uh, that might have been embarrassing for the Scottish crown, however. But uh, th there is still much we don't understand about or know about Darnley's murder. He had been extremely ill when Mary set out to bring him back from Glasgow. His father's estates were in the Glasgow area. He was brought back to Edinburgh, apparently to recuperate, lodged somewhat away from Holyrood House, perhaps because of worries about his health. And there, of course, in February 1567, the entire house was blown up and Darnley and his servant were found dead. But they were found dead in the garden of an adjoining house and they had died of asphyxiation, um, which led to rather a lot of speculation. Yeah. Do you think Mary was behind his murder? I don't think she was behind it. But if you ask me, was she surprised by it? I don't think how she could have been. I don't see how she could have been. Um, I don't think she knew much, if anything, of what was actually planned um, because it wouldn't have been very sensible for her to do so. And her relationship with Bothwell at that stage was still one of queen and, and you know, aristocratic servant, essentially. Uh, and she believed at the time that it was a plot to blow her up as well. She had been visiting Darnley there fairly frequently, but of course the fact that she left so opportunely and so late in the night um, to attend a wedding celebration of, of one of her ladies-in-waiting in has often been viewed uh, with suspicion. Uh, but, but to this day, I don't think we can say for sure how much she knew about it. And you mentioned the Earl of Bothwell, who later became her third husband. Um, I think one of the, the most shocking events in his in her life, really, was the fact that he adopted and, and he raped her before um, their marriage. Um, was this normal practice for the time? And did she actually have any choice <laughs> that, to marry him or not? It wasn't a necessarily unusual practice at the time, mm. um, particularly amongst heiresses and ladies of rank in Northern England and Scotland. Um, the truth of the matter is, if you wanted to um, get a lady's assent to uh, marriage, and particularly if you wanted to get your hands on her lands or any power that went with her, kidnap and rape was not unheard of. You know, Mary was an anointed queen. I think it's still quite shocking that even a man as loutish as Bothwell was could actually have raped her. But I think, you know, the, to him, she was a woman first and a queen second. Um, the queen was important because it would make something of him that he would never have been before. But uh, there have, there's been a lot of... This story, of course, is still capable of various interpretations. But the, um, the romantic stuff in the past of the kidnap at the Bridge of Almond just outside Edinburgh when Mary had returned from Sterling seeing her, her baby son uh, as being all sort of planned and all that um, doesn't really ring true and neither do um, remarks as well why didn't Mary just escape from him she was surrounded by 800 horsemen and it is quite difficult even if you're a good horsewoman to get away under those circumstances and also it would have been considered unbecoming women especially queens did not fight back you know it, it, it wasn't what they did but of course the whole business polluted her as a, as a female and, and, and as a queen. Bothwell, of course, had tried to get Mary to agree to marry him before he abducted and, and raped her. 
Um, he, and he had got, surprisingly, and for reasons we still don't understand, I mean, I, I have a colleague at the University of Edinburgh who's doing a lot of research at this at the moment, so maybe we will get to the bottom of it eventually. But Bothwell invited um, most of the leading nobles and churchmen of Scotland to have dinner with him. Um, and they all signed this thing called the Ainsley's Tavern Bond. And um, we don't know whether Ainsley's Tavern ever existed, incidentally. There's no such place can be found. But uh, And it's possible that Ainsley was an external caterer. And they did sign this thing, apparently not under duress, um, and perhaps hoping that if Mary did agree to marry Bothwell, um, they would get some share in, in power as a result of his um, rather precipitate rise to power. Bothwell took the bond to Mary, uh, and initially she refused him. And he wasn't a popular choice of husband. Um. No, he was a very unpopular choice of husband. He, he made enemies remarkably readily. Um, he'd been a loyal and active servant. He was from the Lothians, from East Lothian. That's where most of his family's support. And he, you know, his family had long been servants of the Scottish crown. He had spent quite a lot of time on the borders as a kind of lieutenant for Mary in a very troubled and lawless area where he had performed extremely well. One of the problems with the story of Mary, Queen of Scots and many other well-known historical stories is that when you look back, you see a straight line that isn't there. But if you imagine yourself living at the time, you don't know what's going to happen next. Mary didn't know. Um, she took what was, she made what was an error of judgment, but I don't know how she would have explained away the existence of um, illegitimate children. She was, in fact, carrying twins. I mean, eventually she miscarried them, um, which was perhaps the best thing in the way, but was desperately sad. Um, but, but she knew she was pregnant. Um, and in May, in, in still wearing her widow's weeds for Darnley, she was married in black to um, Bothwell. And it, it was a short, scrappy and apparently very unhappy marriage. I mean, Mary was desperately depressed, as one would be under the circumstances. Bothwell was very unpopular and a group of lords who became known as the Confederate Lords, again led by the um, troublesome Earl of Morton, decided um, first of all that they would try and, and fight Mary's corner. But Mary wouldn't be separated from Bothwell after she was married to him. Um, she, she couldn't be, really. Uh, and, of course, eventually they, there was a military confrontation, which was a sort of battle that never was. And uh, Bothwell's support melted away. Um, Mary counselled him to leave the country, which he did. With it. He deserted her on the field, basically. And she negotiated with the Confederate lords a, a surrender, which she thought would have her treated honourably. But as you know, it did not. Now, it, she just sound to me like a, a woman who sort of, she was rather swept along by some of the events that were, were sort of happening to her. Do you think she had much control over her own fate? Would you agree with that? I don't think she had much control over her own fate after being um, kidnapped by Bothwell. I, I, up until that point, she probably did. There was a, quite a, you know, a groundswell of goodwill towards her, uh, particularly in the north of Scotland, which was still staunchly Catholic. You know, they, they sent her. Uh, a message saying, we understand your majesty has been ravished, you know, we wish to come and help you. Um, but but none of this actually materialised in the end. I think depressed and appalled by the events that had overtaken her, really since Rizzio's murder, I mean, she, she the birth of her son was a great success and his 
his christening at Stirling just before Christmas 1566 was, was the high point of her reign in some respects. But not knowing what to do about Darnley, then having it violently um, sorted out for her, at least in terms of removing him. Uh, and then this um, difficult man announces he wants to marry you. I mean, albeit the fact that he's married to someone else already is a minor detail. His wife was more than happy to divorce him with great alacrity. Um, she is a woman in a man's world um, and, and a, a physically violent world as well. Elizabeth I never had to go through anything like that. And they, you know, their upbringings had been so different. Mary had had this sheltered, gilded childhood amidst the opulent courts of France. Elizabeth had grown up in a hard school and perhaps had been, might have been more prepared for hardship, um, though her own situation wasn't very good at the time. She wasn't married. She didn't have any heirs. Um, uh, she was fooling around, at least on one level, with Dudley and most of the country thought that she was um, a fairly hopeless queen. I mean, the, the image of the golden age of Elizabeth has got nothing to do with the 1560s when uh, most people thought that she, well, she became very ill with smallpox and they thought she was going to die. But even if she hadn't, they didn't view her as a competent monarch. So um, both queens had a great deal of trouble at this time. And of course, Mary was to become a long lasting trouble to Elizabeth not long afterwards. Yeah, I mean, she did become the focus of a lot of plots against Elizabeth, didn't she? Um, do you think she, she was actually plotting against her? Yes, yeah, she was. She was. Um, certainly towards the end. I'm not sure she was initially. Um, I mean, her decision to come over the border to England was perhaps beyond any knowledge she might have had, whether subliminally or not, of, of Darnley's murder, um, beyond the um, marriage to Bothwell, which seems to us something that a strong woman would have said no to, but given the circumstances of where she lived and when she lived, she couldn't, I don't think, say no to. Probably her worst error of judgment was to flee across the border into England. Um, as you probably know, she escaped from imprisonment on Loch Leven because she'd, she'd been imprisoned on an island in the in a castle on an island in the middle of Loch Leven for oh, eight or nine months. Um, and with the legendary Stuart charm, she managed to persuade her captors to arrange a boat and have her escape. Um, a considerable army and force of people went to to support her under the Earl of Argyle. But by that time, she was fighting James Stuart, the Earl of Murray, her elder half-brother, who, you know, had returned to power. He was on the continent during the whole time of the Darnley murder and the Bothwell marriage. I mean, this was either a very clever piece of... Um, shenanigans by Murray or inspired good luck. I don't think we really know which, but he didn't return until after Mary had been forced to abdicate. And then he lectured her and said, you know, you've let yourself in for this. Goodbye. Um, and became regent for his baby nephew. Um, but when Mary escaped, there were still many people who thought she was the rightful queen of Scotland, the rightful monarch who'd been forced to abdicate under extreme duress. Well, she was told she'd be killed. It was extreme duress. She was told they'd execute her. And, but out short, just outside Glasgow in May of 1568, her forces met those of Murray and were defeated. It, it wasn't really a kind of, you know, overwhelming defeat, but um, it could have even been sort of, they, they could have regrouped, but Mary was terrified, and by that time had had enough. 
and she fed south down through sort of Dumfries and Galloway. Uh, and against the advice of those close to her, um, some who wanted her to stay in Scotland and fight on, others who thought she should at least go to France, where she still had lands from her marriage, she decided to cross the um, Solway Firth in a fishing boat and throw herself on the mercy of Elizabeth, who she seems genuinely to have believed initially would support her. And for a while, I think Elizabeth might have. Elizabeth didn't like rebels, as you know, and she had a strong sense that royalty was was important and Mary was an anointed queen. But once in England, they weren't going to let Mary go and they needed to keep an eye on her. And there was an uprising of uh, the so-called rebellion of the Northern Earls in 1569-70, which was a major threat to Elizabeth's throne. It's not well known, but it was. It was a Catholic uprising rather reminiscent of the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536 against Elizabeth's father. And after that, Mary was kept under much more close control. I mean, she was honourably treated and lived in a variety of, of palaces and castles in the north of England, in the Midlands. Um, Fotheringay, where she was eventually executed, was the farthest south she ever got. And she kept on asking to see Elizabeth. Elizabeth kept on refusing. Uh, and through a very long period of time, Elizabeth simply resisted the blandishments of her advisers, Burley and Walsingham, to do something about Mary. And eventually Mary grew bored. Um, she saw no way out of her situation. She did undoubtedly become involved in some of the later plots against Elizabeth. Um, she talked herself into thinking that, you know, she was the rightful ruler and the Catholic queen of the country, that they would rise to her support. But she was all the time like a fly in a spider's web being pulled in by, well, Burley and especially Walsingham, um, who set up largely some of the latter plots uh, against her. Uh, and Mary couldn't or wouldn't dissociate herself from it. So, yes, she was implicated. Yes, I, it does seem at the end that she would have countenanced Elizabeth's overthrow and, and murder. And Elizabeth, I suppose, despite, you know, the great tantrums and that that she threw, she did sign Mary's death warrant. Mary's death removed a 19 years threat to her throne that was getting worse. That was Linda Porter on the life of Mary Queen of Scots. You can read Linda's feature on the subject in the August issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. There is currently an exhibition on Mary at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh running until the 17th of November, and you can see images from the exhibition at our website, historyextra.com forward slash Mary. Linda Porter will be talking about the Scottish Queen at our History Weekend event in Malmesbury, which takes place in October. For details of that, head to historyweekend.com. Before our next interview, I'd like to tell you about a couple of exciting digital products from BBC History magazine. The First World War Story is a new iPad app that tells the story of the conflict through expert articles, stunning images, audio lectures and video. You can find out about the key battles and events of the war, as well as discovering how it impacted on the lives of ordinary soldiers and civilians. You can find the First World War story on iTunes now. It's priced at £4.99 in the UK or $6.99 in the United States. And still on the iPad, our September edition of the magazine will include a special interactive feature on the Battle of Flodden. 
to coincide with the 500th anniversary of this crucial Anglo-Scottish clash. We've put together videos, audio and interactive maps to tell the story in a fresh and original way. If you own an iPad and are not already a digital subscriber, then this would be a great time to start. You can find us on the newsstand. 50 years ago this month, one of the most important moments in the American civil rights struggle took place. The March on Washington saw a quarter of a million people gather at the United States Capitol, where they heard one of the most famous orations in history, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. At the same time as the March on Washington, another civil rights campaign was taking place, a little closer to home. In fact, in the very same city as I'm speaking to you from now. In 1963, the Bristol Omnibus Company was steadfastly refusing to employ black or Asian drivers, and so a boycott was called. Led by local activists, the campaign was supported by Bristol University students and politicians, including Tony Benn. It became a major news story and eventually compelled the company to remove the colour bar. One of the leaders of the Bristol bus boycott was Paul Stevenson, who still lives in the Bristol area today. We sent our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, to interview Paul about his part in the campaign and about the boycott's legacy. Listen out also for Paul's encounter with one of the most famous sportsmen in world history. How did you first get involved in the civil rights campaign in, in, in the Bristol area? Bristol didn't see that it had a civil rights problem. I came to Bristol in 1962 as a youth and community development worker. And it was at a time when the West Indians, particularly the West Indians, were coming over to Britain, put roots down here. I, having been born here, and having experienced racism at a very close quarters after the war, I then felt that West Indians, particularly Jamaicans, were going to find it difficult to settle in Britain. When you, when you say you'd experienced racism, what sort of forms did that take? I was accepted as one of the young evacuee in a, a small country town called Dunmo in Essex. I was well looked after. I had a great childhood during that period. I wouldn't know was a wall. After the war finished, I came to live in Forest Gate, and it was there that I first experienced hatred through colour. The um, hatred exploded in my not going down certain streets without risking being bottles being thrown, racial abuse by the children of the colonies of East London. I found that uh, this was a wake-up call, that your colour can evoke a lot of hatred. I was called nigger, blackie, monkey, all derogatory names. And I wondered, at first, white landers behaved this way. But apparently it was very open, naked racism. I didn't want what happened to me to happen to the children of the... West Indians. I was particularly struck by Elsa Parks and I felt that um, it was important that a new generation of black people, particularly from the Caribbean 
and India was quite a number of Indians were coming into England at that time, post-war. And um, I felt that uh, what was happening in America was happening here, in Britain, in Bristol, when I first came here. So how, when, when you originally came to Bristol, was it quite a similar situation in, in Bristol as, it, as in London? I mean, was, were the levels of racism as, as high in well, Bristol it was, as it was in London? It was difficult to gauge it. it yeah. What was happening, you didn't know. There was no law against racial discrimination. You could, you could discriminate as much as you liked. Bristol City Bus Company yeah. was a large employer. And made it quite clear that you you don't have to employ black people if you don't want them. So why did you decide to take a stand at this particular over this particular issue? Because Martin Luther King was taking a stand. So you drew direct inspiration from as what he was directly doing. linked to what I felt was Luther King's stand on race, and that it was similar to what was happening here. A black person couldn't be a policeman, couldn't be. Ambulancemen, firemen, couldn't work on, on the buses. There were many areas which were blocked out. Couldn't go into a pub, hotel, swimming pool. You just didn't know when you were going to be told, not you, but your white friend can come in. You didn't know where you were. And I was keen to see that there was justice for black people. So the, the issue with, with the um, with the bus boycott and um, Bristol on the bus not allowing black people to work on the buses, am I right in saying this was this story was broken by the the Bristol Evening Post? Is that how you first uh, uh, got yes. wind of it? I learned that from the black people themselves. Um, so how how did you go about taking action? I mean, what what, what I called I called a, a meeting of some of the Bristol adults that oh. I. That I'd met in my work as a youth worker. I was yeah. teaching in the local t- school in Bristol, yeah. in St Paul's, right, hey, Baptist yeah. Mills, it was known then. And of course, I was told by whites as well as black that uh, you never, black people will never be able to work on Bristol's buses, which was another way of saying you'll always be beaten, pressed, and you won't get very far as, what, what a, as a bus driver. Why do you think the bus company had this policy? I mean, why, why do you think they did that? Well, it was, I think it was due to the racism of the director of the bus company at that time, Ian Patey, who felt that um, white women who were going to be conductresses were faced being molested or even raped by black conductors. So he saw that there was a problem for white women who were conductors having to work alone with black drivers or rather black conductors. The unions were more concerned with their status of black people taking on becoming conductors was a threat to their social status. And they would also, they felt that um, black, black people on the whole would undercut their wages do work for much cheaper. So there was a fear, economic fear on behalf of the conductors and racism on behalf of the, the management. Do you think that they were surprised that you took the decision 
to take a stand against against them? Do you think they they just assumed that they'd get away with it, as it were? I think they assumed that they could get away with it. This is why the West Indians felt that they could get away with it as well. The um, manager said, you know, go away and have your campaign. You won't, we're not having black people. So they were quite confident that they were going to win, basically. Oh, yeah. I told them that, well, we, we would fight a campaign and I was going to bring in as many people as I could in support of it. So how, how, did the, how did you run the campaign? How did you go about putting across your argument and um, getting publicity? And what did you do? Did you hold press conferences? Yes, I held a number of press conferences and made speaking engagements around the city invited the high commissioners which had only just become countries that had just become uh, independent so I invited the Jamaican high commissioner Trinidadian high commissioner Leary Constantine who lost his job instantly because Eric Williams his prime minister said he shouldn't have got involved oh. Harold Wilson got annoyed Harold brought Harold Wilson in because Tony was a men's connection with him yeah. and he promised that he was support to the campaign against in support of the boycott so it was now becoming nationalized it's now the media were now taking an interest in the, sure. the battle were you surprised by the amount of support that the campaign attracted no not really i felt that um once it got off the the campaign got off the ground people would see how ridiculous the, the um whole idea of racism was something that was a, was a social evil. And um, once the, Ian Patey had declared to the country, once he, he had said or implied that black people would be a sexual threat to white females, once he, he put that out for, as a reason for his racism, I knew that it was a matter of time because he couldn't continue with that attitude. Yeah, that's an argument you just can't stand by and that will stand up for yeah, it to examination. No, it was a question of time. Um, and then the students, Marsh's support of you as well. The West Indian students and staff, Yeah, they got together yeah. and marched from, from up the top of Park Street into the centre of town. So was it ga- sort of slowly gathering momentum? Oh, then? yes, it was yeah. now gathering. Sir Philip Water, who was the chairman of the parent company, Bristol Bus Company, was petitioned by the High Commissioners of Trinidad and I believe that he ordered Ian Patey, the manager of the Bristol Bus Company, to abandon the concept of racism on the buses or he'd have to resign I think that uh, the 40 odd days that we were battling came to an end 28th of August 1963 yeah. and it was the same t- it happened to coincide with Martin Luther King's speech the day he spoke was the day that the headlines of the Evening Post was yes to Colour Cruz so they basically, they basically relented and said yeah you could have yeah Black people working on the buses. Can I just ask you, what um, sort of reaction, firstly, did your campaign get from 
the black population of Bristol? I mean, were they overwhelmingly supportive? Not overwhelmingly. They were concerned that they, their job prospects will become even worse. Okay, why did they, why did they think that? Well, they were saying that this is a white man's country and you can't tell the white man what to do. It wasn't an overwhelming endorsement at first. Yeah. When they realised that we were going to win, they came round. But there was a lot of anxiety as to where would all this take us. Yeah. Having got up, decided to make the journey to England, they felt insecure. And you were saying they felt they were in a white man's country. And so so you have to do what the white man tells you. Sure, okay, yeah. And that was very strongly put to me by several individuals. But by and large, the support was strong among the West Indian community that they'll win this fight. How did you go about um, persuading the ones that were a little bit sceptical about it? What was your argument to them? You've got to think of the next generation. If, if you don't, you've got to look at what's happening in America. Black people around the world are freeing themselves from colonial law, yeah. domestic discrimination, racial discrimination. We've got to live as equals, otherwise we are going to have nothing but violence. What was um, the reaction of um, sort of white Bristolians. I know you mentioned like students obviously was, came out in support of you and a lot of you know, politicians. Bristol University was the, was the first university in Britain to, mar to march against racism. And, I mean, did you um, face, I mean, did you face any abuse or hostility oh, yes, from... Plenty, plenty of abuse and hostility and, and death threats. I, How did you react to that? I mean, what does that feel like? It didn't really concern me. I was more concerned with whether we were going to win and the issues that it, that it raised. Harold Wilson invited Britain's West Indian leadership, invited me to London, where I met up with Harold Wilson, yeah. who told me that if he was leader of the opposition at that time, he told me that he would, uh, when he became, if, he, if he became Prime Minister, he would introduce laws against racial discrimination. There was already an organisation in London called CARD, Campaign Against Racial Discrimination. Oh, okay, yeah. And they cottoned on, hooked on to our campaign, but they had difficulty in getting getting off the ground because you've got all kinds of political groups from the extreme left to yeah. the extreme right, all wanting to become part of who came this, yeah. this campaign against racial discrimination. On a personal level, what was it like to suddenly be in the spotlight? I mean, you, you obviously, obviously got, a, got a lot of attention during this period. I mean, did that feel a bit strange or did, you know, or did it just encourage you to... to... Well, I was getting, getting both sides. I was yeah. getting praise for what I was doing. I was getting... Yeah. What was I going to say? So you get your... Um, you're getting praise from people, but obviously, like you were saying, a bit of hostility as well. Yeah, most of it was praise rather yeah, than yeah. hostility. And mm. um, was your sort of confidence in what you were arguing for, is that what sort of kept you going? You know, the, oh yes, I knew that we got, I, I knew that the issues raised weren't just getting black people on the Bristol buses. Yeah. It raised sociological 
historical and many other issues that had not been addressed. And to address racism was going to be one of the hardest things for, for the British to come to terms with. And, and after you'd won, after the, the bus companies relented, did a lot of black people start working on the buses quite quickly? Not, not quickly. In right, fact, okay. it, was an, it was an Asian black beer Singh who was yeah. the first to um, work on the buses and then later followed by the West Indians. So it's quite a slow process of that happening. Yeah, uh, but now, of course, one sees black drivers and buses. Yeah. But the, the law, Hal Dawson kept his promise. It was in 1965 That's right, when yeah. the first Racialations Act, first act against discriminatory behaviour. And do you think the Bristol bus boycott was sort of instrumental in oh, making yes. that happen? Oh, yes. It, it, it caused Hal Dawson in the Labour Party to look at what was happening. So that must have felt like an amazing achievement. Well, not at the time, but today it was an amazing achievement. Um, and how did it feel when the bus company relented and you knew, knew you were victorious? How did you feel? It was relief. Yeah. I, was, I was no longer going to have to be up front all the time on every yeah. issue. So it was quite a relief. And did your victory have a knock-on effect for other um, places of employment? I mean, once the bus company said they... Well, the Race Relations Act of 1965 started the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah. uh, That you could not discriminate on grounds alone. It didn't didn't address employment, I think, because the unions were very worried. But eventually, after that, in 1968, employment came, came under the Act. But it was mainly public places, discrimination in public places. Yeah. I was arrested a year after I won my was that in a public in a, in a pub? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so can you explain what happened there then? I have read about it, but... I was told by two West Indian youngsters, when I say youngsters, they were, they were over, over 18, that they were told they couldn't have a drink in the pub, they don't serve black people. And so they came, spoke to me about it. What do you think I could do? I said, well, I'll try and see whether what you're saying is true or not. So I went there myself, and when I, I ordered a drink, a bit a small glass of beer, and the manager, his manager, said, you can drink that down here and get out, we don't serve black people. I said, no, I've done nothing wrong, so I don't see why I should leave. He said, if you don't leave, we'll call the police. I said, we can call the police. The police came with their eight police officers came with the dogs and land rovers and uh, told me I was under arrest. They didn't say what what I'd done wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he must come down to the police station. Well, I was banged up, as it were, and eventually told that I was going to be charged. I was being charged with refusing to quit license premises. Whilst I was in the cells, an Irish person came to see the police and spoke highly of my behaviour and the provocation they, they had put me under and that I hadn't done anything wrong. But the police told them to go away. They weren't interested in his story. That was on the Friday. On the Monday, the Evening Post got the story. Obviously, the police had given it in the confident view that they've got that we've got this nigger now and it's stopping from campaigning for the rights of blacks. But I reversed it, managed to get my chairman, 
and who are to support my not guilty plea, which she she did. She got a very good solicitor, and um, I had a week fighting my case in open court. It was front page news for the whole week in the Evening Post. But I won my case. Magistrate said we don't see any need to convict you. You're not guilty, and that shocked the city. It also gave me another confident knock in Bristol's black community. And did that bring an end to publicans refusing to serve black people in public? Yeah, absolutely. You didn't know whether they were bar staff or well, attendant or manager could just say, you can't come in, you can, you're white, you're black, you can't. So you never knew where you were. How, how would you compare the situation now with 1963 in terms of racial discrimination? Well, there's a strong public awareness that um, of racism, which wasn't there before, the law is down a bit, but we've still got some way to go. Each generation is going to be confronted with racism. And it's up to that generation to fight the, the evil that, that springs from discri- discrimination on grounds of race. So you don't think there's any room for complacency then? No. no. Every generation will be faced with the consequences of not, not facing up to, or standing up to racism. And is that why you think is quite important that we remember the anniversary of the bus boycott to remind people that racism is still still there and thriving and and seeking a way in which it can flourish. We've got immigration issues. These are all all leading to intolerance and the pandering. At the moment, our political leaders are pandering to racism. And that's cannot be a good thing. So does the sort of developments the last, say, last few weeks, does that concern you a, a, a little bit with the publicity that immigration's been getting in? Yes, because it, because it has a, a racist element to it. Uh, when I first started campaigning, the, the Times were referring to me as a Negro leader. We were Negroes, those who were coming in from the Caribbean. But that was changed to immigrants. When people talk about immigrants, they're really be talking to people of colour. Can you just tell me a little bit about meeting Muhammad Ali? I know it's not directly related to the bus point. Oh, that was in the work together to set up the Muhammad Ali Development Sports Development Association. Oh, right, okay. Where did you meet him? Is um, it? I think it was in the Hilton. Oh, right. I was okay. on, on the press, on the Sports Council. I was yeah. living in London on the yeah. sport on the sports council. Dennis Howell has pointed me on the sports council, and um, I spoke to him in the foyer of Hilton and invited him to, to visit my school where I was a governor. Yeah, Towers Hill School, and um, he was quite interested in the idea. But he said, "I'm a busy man, you know. You can't." Uh, Certainly, just to come to your school like that. Yeah. And he said, How much are you going to pay me? I said, I can't <laughs> pay you anything. So he said, uh, You have more nerve than former. <laughs> and, and he told me he would come. So the school didn't know there were 1,200 young 
youngsters, mainly black, yeah. in the heart of Brixton. And they couldn't believe that Muhammad Ali was going to come to the school. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And I, I said, I hope you welcome this young man who's just returning from Africa. He just fought for them. Okay. He's on his way back to Chicago. Yeah. I want you to give a big hand and welcome to Muhammad Ali. And everything went absolutely dead quiet. I was with Muhammad on the side of the stage. And I think the youngsters were saying, well, what's happening? Why are we all here? And then I said to Muhammad, go on the stage. Go on, go on the middle of the stage so they can see you. And of course, when they see him, saw him, when they recognized him, the roof erupted, the whole place erupted. Because partly, Muhammad and I wondered why the silence, which lasted only half a minute, seemed ages. What had happened was I introduced him as as a black American, as Muhammad Ali. Well, they didn't know who Muhammad Ali was. The name wasn't with them. And so they didn't know who Muhammad, who's Muhammad Ali, until they saw him. They recognized him. And they were wild. Couldn't believe that Muhammad Ali was in their school and on their stage. He's the biggest name in the world sports. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we kept, so I set up the Muhammad Ali Sports Development Association, Mazda. Yeah. And um, for three years, we got, uh, I promoted, uh, in my spare time, this was, promoted um, Muhammad Ali Sports Development Association. We had hundreds of youngsters in it. Asian, English, yeah. and I was giving, to, to introducing them to sports they hadn't known much about, yeah. such as angling, horse riding, right. golf, tennis, and they, hundreds of them joined up. But then the Lambeth City Council took the, the um, position that they were going to close the school to convert the, the school into a housing estate. But for, five, for three to five years, Master was a very popular, and they know, even now if I go into Brixton, they rec- often recognise me, and say the days yeah. when I, t- I took them to Germany, took the youngsters on on Norfolk Broads, yeah. or not camping on camping in Mandersley, in Norfolk, Norfolk Broads. So that was uh, no, I did that. Very amazing. Uh, uh, Could you just sort of explain how? Sort of boycott changed your life because I imagine it did to some extent. Um, well, it, it, it gave me the resolve to confront racism. It was naked, and uh, it had to be confronted. Yeah. And uh, people had to be aware because it could lead to dire situations. Yeah. That's the first thing that. I decided I would address the issue of race. That was Paul Stevenson in conversation with Spencer Mizzen. Paul has written a book about his experiences entitled Memoirs of a Black Englishman, which is published by Tangent Books. Now, Spencer's written an article for the magazine about the boycott, which also includes interviews with other activists who took part. 
You'll find that in our August issue alongside a companion piece about Martin Luther King's iconic speech. You can get hold of the August edition now in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. And that is almost all for this week. Do please get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com. We'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter at History Extra. And you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about historical fiction in both book and TV forms. So you'll want to join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.